Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before we begin today, I'd like to point out that this episode won't be one for the kids or for those for whom strong violence may be a trigger. Listener discretion is advised. Sunday, 30th of October, 1888. London's East End, Whitechapel. A thick fog settles over the sleeping city. It had been that way for days. At the height of the Victorian age, the so-called pea supers, a dense yellow-green cloud of smoke, dust, and toxic sulfur dioxide would descend upon the city, casting it in an eerie light. The inspector crouches down beside the body, the investigators on the scene have been able to roughly place the time of death. 1am, there or thereabouts. They've arrived quickly. This could be the man they're looking for, after all, and the sooner they get the police cordoned up, the better. Journalists have been hounding Scotland Yard, London's Metropolitan Police Service, for weeks about the killings, each more grisly than the last, perpetrated under cover of darkness, with no end in sight and few, if any, leads. This body isn't like the others, though. Whilst there was excessive mutilation on the first two victims, this one, though ghastly her death, wasn't so badly afflicted. The interviews with those around seemed to imply that the perpetrator may have been interrupted during this attack, and so unable to finish what he'd started. Inspector Raveline had been working this case for weeks, with no leads. Two women already are dead. Starting in September, it seemed that for a while the attacks might be gang-related. Whitechapel is a hotbed of criminal activity, so this wouldn't be unusual. Furthermore, this would actually be the fifth woman killed in the area, but the last two seemed eerily similar, and this one matches the MO, so the thinking around Scotland Yard is that there's a serial killer on the loose. As Abilene is pondering their next move, keeping the journalists at bay, cordoning off the area, searching for clues, a shout from down the road. Another body, due west. He takes off with several officers in tow. How could this be? Two killings in one night? He scans the faces of everyone he passes. They have a description. Five foot three to five foot seven, so average height. A moustache, dark hat, and dark coat. It's no use. The killer could be anyone, lurking around any corner. And in Whitechapel, people come and go all the time. In a district full to the brim of criminals and smugglers, gang leaders and those who would seek to satisfy their vice of choice, one more shady character would be a drop in the ocean of people. What makes matters worse is that Whitechapel is the perfect place for a murder. Endless winding alleys and back streets, dimly lit and under-patrolled. Whilst it was densely populated, people died here all the time. It was one of the worst slums in London. But they didn't usually die like this. His heart pounding in his ears, he reaches Mitre Square. Twelve minutes walk from the last scene, but far faster for him and his men. There, they see the body of another woman, and this time, there was no interruption. The damage was gruesome, an almost full disembowelment, as well as one missing kidney and parts of her reproductive system. Whoever the killer was, they worked damn quickly, as they were in and out in under half an hour. 
Furthermore, they committed this killing whilst the alarm was being raised for the first one, less than 10 minutes away. It couldn't be the same person, could it? But both fit the MO with the suspect. Abilene's trying to wrap his head around it. At 3am, an officer pulls him aside. You'd better come quickly, sir. We found something. Back east, they go, until in an alleyway they find a piece of an apron on the floor. From a glance, they can tell it belonged to the most recent victim. But more disturbing is the message written in chalk above it, on the wall. The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Abilene begins to panic. Anti-Semitic sentiments are at an all-time high, and the East End is a powder keg ready to blow. The public are already foaming at the mouth over the inability of the police to stop the killings. Now, two in one night, and a message to boot? At 5am, the commissioner arrives. He orders the writing to be scrubbed from the wall. They already know what it says, in case it's relevant, and there's no use giving the public an excuse to incite a pogrom. But the locations worried the police, because not only did the killer strike twice in one night, ten minutes away from the other site, but they went back towards the first site, with cops swarming the streets and planted evidence with a taunting message to boot. A daylight robbery, and not a good look for Scotland Yard. Two weeks later, a letter arrives at the desk of George Lusk, head of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. It states its origin. From hell. It also contains part of a human kidney, as taken from the second victim. If this is a student's prank, it's not funny. At this point, the criticism was reaching all the way up to the government. Papers slammed the Home Secretary for failing to catch the criminal. Police were offering what today would be over £55,000 for information. One more woman would be killed in what would later be called the canonical five murders. But whilst many people would die in London's East End, unknown and forgotten in some of the worst slums in history, the shockingly brutal nature of these crimes and the underlying social tensions that they unveiled would end up holding a microscope to the very fabric of Victorian society. And the people didn't like what they saw. So today on Demystified, we put on our dear stalkers as we delve into the fact and the fiction surrounding history's most notorious serial killer, Jack the Ripper. We're finally here, 25 episodes in and we're tackling what is arguably the most infamous historical mystery of all time. So why wait this long? Well, I was reticent to talk about it because I wanted to cover what I saw as more unique and more interesting topics. Not that this one isn't interesting, but I wanted to stake out a territory that wasn't just another true crime podcast. Furthermore, when dealing with a killer as gruesome as Jack the Ripper, many choose to get bogged down in the morbidity of the crimes themselves. And that's a trend that goes back to the time of the murders. It's a common human trait, really. Like with rubbernecking a car crash, you can't help but look on with that strange fascination. To alleviate these common pitfalls, I'll be taking a look towards the sociological impacts of these murders. There's far more to this story than the killings themselves. But here we are. When you deal in historical mysteries, you can't avoid it. And for good reason. These murders shocked London to its core and have reverberated across the world. I'd wager almost nobody doesn't know the name Jack the Ripper and that they're the most famous anonymous person of all time. So back go the clocks and we find ourselves in London, 1888, 
the height of the Victorian age. London is the black sooty jewel in the crown of the British Empire. At this point, the world's hegemon and fast becoming the largest empire in the history of the world, although its peak would be just after the First World War. London was a city of two halves, as many cities are. On the one hand, it was a city of splendour. The museums, the Crystal Palace, endless gardens and palaces, Big Ben, Tower Bridge on the way, a modern sewerage system, the Underground, yep, the Underground opened in 1863, and a population of around 5 million people. It truly was the greatest city in all of history. But this greatness was built on the backs of some of the worst human suffering you could imagine. Poor houses where people paid a penny a night to sleep standing up, shoulder to shoulder, leaning on ropes. Debtors and orphans were sent to indentured servitude in workhouses, paid pittance for the privilege. It had cost you a week's wages to get your arm out if it got mangled in a machine and you didn't know how to operate it. Outbreaks of diseases were not uncommon, and the terrible sanitation and water access led to tuberculosis, cholera, typhoid fever, rickets, scarlet fever and smallpox. Alcoholism and drug use were rampant, as was crime of every flavour. And the smog, the endless smog. Factories upon factories pumped plumes of choking pollution into the sky. Today we'd see it as barbaric, but back then it was a sign of an advanced society. Too bad that advanced only applied to the upper crust back then. In this morass of poverty we find the East End. Whilst objectively the poorest district in London was St Giles, the East End in general was focused on dock work and as such developed its own unsavoury reputation, and the Whitechapel district became infamous for its brothels, 62 in 1888. Sex work was common for women and some men in Victorian Britain. It was work you didn't need advanced training for, it was always in high demand, especially down by the docks where the sailors supplying the heart of the empire would ship ashore, and you could actually do it as a woman. The stigma for women attempting to break into the workplace prevented them from attaining success in actual other fields of work, and for those born poor it was the only option to survive. With the context for the poverty of this area at the time, it almost seems that an event like this would be inevitable. So many people crammed into such a small place. Social tensions such as nativism, anti-Irish sentiment for example, racism, anti-Semitism, and the ongoing crime epidemics, and the general deprivation of the people meant that something was going to give. And on the 31st of August, it did. Mary Ann Nichols was found at 3.45am on the 31st of August, 1888, in Bucks Row. Her throat had been cut. Twice, almost totally severing it. She had a deep, jagged cut on her abdomen, with several other stab wounds. The murder was initially linked to two others, not within the canonical five of Jack the Ripper, but included in the 11 Whitechapel murders of 1888-1891. to It was thought it could be gang-related initially, and progress investigating it was slow. The story changed tack when The Star, a local newspaper, suggested it could have been committed by a lone killer, and other newspapers followed suit. This would be one of the first instances in modern history of a media frenzy surrounding a police investigation, and it'll play in a lot more later. When the idea of a serial killer was proposed, with the three deaths being considered, the first two later being dropped, DIs Frederick Abiline, Henry Moore and Walter Andrews of Scotland Yard were assigned to the case. Coroner Wynne Baxter, the coroner for most of the Whitechapel murders, ruled out a link with the earlier two killings, with the weapon used being different. But the inquest into Nichols' death had just ended when the killer struck again, and Baxter was now convinced that this was linked, the similarities being too strong. The second victim, or the fourth in total, was Annie Chapman. 
Like Nichols, she was also a sex worker. She was found on the morning of the 8th of September, around 6am, just over a week later. Her last known whereabouts had been leaving her lodgings at around 2am that night, to collect money to pay her rent. It doesn't get any nicer from here, by the way, so this will be the last discretion warning before we go on. Her throat had been cut, as before. She'd been disemboweled, with her intestines thrown over her shoulders. Examination showed that the uterus had been removed, which was the first clue to the idea that the killer had anatomical knowledge used to produce the clean cut needed to remove the reproductive organ. This wasn't a definite idea, however. Bodies tended not to be examined at the scene, rather later, so there was a suggestion that the morgue workers had removed it to sell as a surgical specimen, as was not uncommon at the time. Two days later, police arrested a notorious local, John Pizer, nicknamed Leather Apron, but after his alibis were cleared, he was released without charge. One witness, Elizabeth Long, testified she'd seen Chapman talking to a man around 5.30 in the morning, 30 minutes before her death. Mrs. Long described him as over 40, a little taller than Chapman, of dark complexion, and of a foreign, shabby-genteel appearance. He wore a deerstalker hat and a dark overcoat. This is where the murders started to cause panic in the community. One death was not uncommon, two was a little unusual. Now, four women were dead, and it was beginning to look like a serial killer was stalking the streets of Whitechapel. A mob attacked the police station on Commercial Road after being led to believe the killer was being held there. Samuel Montague, MP for Whitechapel, offered £100 as a reward for information, roughly £1,100 today. Anti-Semitic further led to the spreading of rumours that the murders were Jewish blood rituals, despite there being no such thing as Jewish blood rituals. One George Lusk founded the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee and offered a reward for the killer's capture. The police had hesitated to do this in the past because it had led to numerous false accusations. On the 27th of September, the first letter arrived. Dubbed the Dear Boss letter due to its opening line, it reads, Quote, Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands, curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. End quote. At first it was suggested that this was merely a fabrication of a journalist to drum up business, but the temptation was too wild. This was a public drunk on penny dreadfuls, and now they had the real-life equivalent. The nickname stuck. Then we arrive at the day that would drive the public insane. On the 30th of September, Elizabeth Stride's body was found around 1am in Dutfield's yard. Her throat had been cut, as with the others, but apart from that, the body had not been mutilated. This led to the idea that the killer had fled before they could carry out their intentions. 
Louis Diemschutz found the body, and police believed that his approach spooked the killer. Then, 45 minutes later, a second victim was found. Catherine Eddowes was killed in the city of London, the small enclave of banks and guilds, and was the worst afflicted yet. The same throat slash was present, but her face and abdomen had been heavily mutilated, with her left kidney and most of her uterus removed. Again, it was postulated that this was indicating surgical knowledge. What this also indicated, however, was something far more terrifying. Mitre Square is west of the Stride killing, around a 12-minute walk. She'd been killed around half-past one, 30 minutes after Stride's body was found. He'd walked through an area that would have been crawling with police just after his most recent killing and struck again on the same night. Then one of the only actual clues was found, the piece of Edo's apron, east of the murder site. Near it, the chalk message written on the wall, quote, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing, end quote. This was found east of the Edo site, which meant that not only did the killer strike twice in one night, he walked back towards the scene of the first crime, whilst the whole area would be on high alert, swarming with police, to plant a clue and leave a message. This means one of several things. Perhaps he was audacious, wanting to taunt the police. Perhaps he had an intimate knowledge of police procedures or the routes they'd go. Perhaps he was a local and could navigate the back alleys, or... Maybe he was someone the police wouldn't suspect. Rich or a woman. At the time, prejudice was a pretty big part of criminal profiling and led to some less than accurate suspicions. Then on October the 1st, we get a postcard. The day after the killings. This is inherently suspicious because the public at large wouldn't know the details of the murders when the postcard would be sent, leading to some interesting details. It reads, quote, I was not codding, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about saucy Jackie's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit, couldn't finish straight off. Had not time to get ears for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. End quote. However, since this letter was postmarked on the 1st, enough time had passed that some journalists, and certainly some locals, would be aware of the details, meaning it could still be a hoax. In 2018, an analyst concluded that the handwriting and language were similar enough to suggest that it was written by the same writer of the Dear Boss letter. Whether both were the killer or both were hoaxes is unknown. Remember George Lusk, head for the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee? On the 16th of October, he receives a letter, the From Hell letter. It reads, quote, From Hell. Mr. Lusk, Sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman preserved it for you t'other piece I fried and ate it was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if only you wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. End quote. The box accompanying the letter had half a human kidney in it. Lusk figured it to be a hoax and didn't report it until urged to do so by the rest of the vigilance committee. Now, the letter is very different from the other two. It doesn't use the killer's nickname and contains a far lower literacy level in general. Spelling mistakes, as I indicated, are rampant and it's written in a cramped, unskilled style. As a result, the From Hell letter is considered variously a prank by a medical student or the only genuine letter sent by the killer. Then on the 9th of November, the final canonical victim was found, Mary Kelly. She was found at 10.45am by her landlord. This was by a long way, the most grisly scene. The throat slash was there, but the brutality was another level entirely. Almost all of her organs had been removed and placed around the room. 
Her breasts had been cut off, her face was cut nearly beyond recognition. Her thighs had been cut to the bone, sheared of flesh. Her clothes were found folded on a stool. Unlike the other killings, this had taken place in a private room rather than on the street. Speculated to be the reason as to why this was the worst. More time and privacy to act. Her state of undress suggested that either she was killed in a state of incapacitation, drunk or asleep, or by someone she knew, or was being hired by a client at the time. Her funeral on the 19th was massive. Mourners flocked and the streets were gridlocked. At this point, public outrage had reached a boiling point. Police stationed 143 plainclothes police officers patrolling the area and Parliament offered a pardon for any accomplices if they would give evidence. Then the murders ended. Or rather not. Several more women would die in the remaining Whitechapel murders, but the canonical five of Jack the Ripper were over. The fallout was immense. The failure of the police to apprehend the culprit was spun into the idea that they were inept and useless. This reflected badly on Henry Matthews, the Home Secretary, and in 1892 the government was voted out of power in the election. Scotland Yard was badly hit. Aberline resigned in 1892, and a slew of other notables linked to the case did so in the following years. It also massively shifted public opinion against the deprivation of the East End slums. George Bernard Shaw quipped sarcastically, quote, Whilst we conventional social democrats were wasting our time on education, agitation and organisation, some independent genius has taken the matter in hand, and by simply murdering and disemboweling women, converted the proprietary press to an inept sort of communism. End quote. But with all that bloodshed now laid out, we can finally look at the list of suspects. I can't look at everyone, because this case has by far and away one of the longest suspect lists of any unsolved crime, so I'll take a selection of some of the most commonly suggested. First, let's have a look at the profile drawn up by Scotland Yard. 25 to 35 years old, 5 foot 3 to 5 foot 7, which would have been average for the time, stocky, fair complexion, with a moustache. A dark overcoat and a dark hat, possibly a deerstalker, were also common features. Most interestingly, Scotland Yard emphasised that the killer would be totally normal to the undiscerning eye. Furthermore, there's the ever-present idea that the killer had some level of anatomical knowledge, maybe a surgeon, maybe a medical student. Let's start with the three official suspects that Scotland Yard drew up, not by any means the most commonly cited, but necessary to look at, I think. Suspect number one, Montague Johnson Drewitt. A barrister in London with an uncle and a cousin that was a doctor, Jewett lived with said cousin near the site of the murders. Around a month before the murders, his mother had gone insane, and Jewett wrote in a personal note that he feared a similar fate awaited him. Apparently, his own relatives feared him as being the killer, and he disappeared after the final killing, and was found floating in the Thames on the 3rd of December, 1888. However, Jewett was in Dorset the day after the first murder and wasn't a Whitechapel local, a large part of the profile established by Scotland Yard as he lived in Kent. Suspect number two, Michael Ostrog, a Russian doctor who'd been in an asylum before for homicidal tendencies. Whilst Ostrog had no alibi for the murders, a lack of actual evidence led to his not being convicted. What homicidal tendencies entails, I have no idea. To add to this, records show that he was in jail in France during the period of the Ripper murders. He was added to the suspect list a year after the final killing. Suspect number three was Aaron Kuzminski, a Polish resident of Whitechapel. 
He'd been in an asylum in 1889 after the last murder, and would remain in asylums until he died in 1919. However, he was largely harmless in the asylum. His insanity took the form of auditory hallucinations, a fear of being fed by other people, a refusal to wash or bathe, and self-abuse. He was well known for his misogyny, however, and his dislike of prostitutes, and matched a description provided by the police of a man seen in Mitre Square the night of the double murder. In the book Naming Jack the Ripper, he was proposed as the primary suspect due to DNA evidence. A shawl, perched at an auction, supposedly belonged to Catherine Eddowes. With a comparison to one of her descendants and one of Kuzminski's, it seemed open and shut. However, Dr. Yari Luhalainen, the molecular scientist involved, may have made a slight mistake. A mutation was identified, called 314.1c, which belongs to 1 in 290,000 people, shared by Eddowes and her descendants. 7.5 billion people, current population of the planet, divided by 290,000 gives you just over 25,000 possible people that could have that mutation, Relatively uncommon, if my maths is correct. But this was apparently incorrect. The mutation was in fact 315.1c, not 314.1c. 315.1c is shared by more than 99% of people of European descent. If that's the real mutation, then the evidence means literally nothing. In addition, the evidence linking Kosminski to the scarf was done using mitochondrial DNA, a less substantive type, and the evidence has not been peer-reviewed or published, and few, if any, questions from news outlets have been answered about it. Russell Edwards, author of the book, maintained steadfastly that Kosminski was Jack the Ripper, but since the evidence is shaky and not reviewed, it can't be considered definite by any measure. With those three established, we can look at some of the other theories. First among those is the idea that Jack the Ripper was Jill the Ripper, a woman. It was said that this was one of Inspector Abilene's theories. A woman could slip by the police in crime scenes, and a midwife would have the necessary anatomical knowledge to remove reproductive organs. Whilst this would mean they wouldn't fit the descriptions given, they would pass unnoticed, and if they were a midwife, they could even be bloody and pass unnoticed. Because of the lack of evidence to support this, few, if any, actual female suspects were named. Perhaps then the Ripper escapes justice just because of Victorian social mores, the thought that a woman could never commit such barbaric acts. Then there's the so-called royal conspiracy, Prince Albert Victor, the Duke of Clarence. The basic idea is that the prince visited the Whitechapel brothels and contracted syphilis, going mad from the disease. After having a child with a local woman, Queen Victoria ordered the deaths of the women to cover up the affair. Several problems with this. Firstly, the Queen never really had that kind of ability. Even Victoria couldn't just pay to have people assassinated, that's not really how it works. Secondly, a royal bastard wouldn't have been that big a deal, not worth the deaths of five innocent people, or eleven if you include the others. Sure, he was second in line to the throne, but there's far easier ways to cover it up than with highly publicised gruesome murders. Thirdly, the Prince neither had syphilis nor was in London at the time of the murders. His alibi is ironclad. He did die in 1892, which some consider evidence, but he died of pneumonia, not syphilis. This idea gained traction mostly because it's sensational, but it didn't pick up prominence until the 1960s, after a serious game of Chinese whispers fabricated evidence to suggest that the prince had syphilis. Patricia Cornwell, a writer, suggested that the painter Walter Sickert was the killer. Worth noting, Cornwell has gone fairly off the deep end on this one, buying 32 of his paintings and cutting them open to find clues to the tune of £2 million. 
but she is right in that the man was obsessed with Jack the Ripper. He dressed up as him, his paintings were inspired by him, and apparently an analysis of letters from Sickert and the Ripper suggested that they came from the same batch of paper. The paper evidence, if true, would make Sickert as the subject impossibly likely. But it's also worth noting that the letters have not been proven to be evidence. Indeed, one of the letters was clearly written by a different person to the other two. Charles Allen Lechmere, also called Charles Cross, was once considered an innocent bystander who discovered Marianne Nichols's body. But according to Christopher Holmgren, a Swedish journalist, he lied to the police, claiming that he'd been with Nichols's body for a few minutes, whereas research on his work route from his home indicated he must have been there for about nine minutes. He also worked as a meat cart driver, providing an excuse for bloody clothes. When Cross called over Robert Paul to look at her, the body, no blood was visible, but by the time a constable found them afterwards, a pool of blood had formed around the neck, suggesting the cut to the throat was very fresh from when they were present. In addition, neither men reported seeing or hearing anyone else in Buck's Row, which had no side exits. It was theorised that Cross had killed Nichols and begun the process of mutilating the body when he heard Paul's footsteps, and then rushed to portray himself as the discoverer. Cross didn't come forward until Paul mentioned him to the press, and he gave evidence under the name Charles Cross rather than Charles Lechmere at the inquest. Cross was the surname of one of his stepfathers. His home address, visits to family, and route to work all link him to the times and places of the murder. He passed the streets where Martha Tabram, another Whitechapel victim outside the Canonical Five, Mary Ann Nichols and Annie Chapman were murdered roughly at the same time the murders were estimated to have occurred. The double event murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes occurred on a Saturday, his only night off of work. Stride was killed near Lechmere's mother's house in an area he grew up in, and the direct route from Stride's murder scene to the location of Eddowes' murder scene followed a path that his route to work had used for 20 years. Mary Kelly was also murdered on his route to work, and the time frame in which she is estimated to have been killed matches his route, although the day she was killed was a holiday and you may have had that day off. There's also the fascinating story of James Maybrick, a cotton merchant from Liverpool, who died a year after the killing stopped. As a wealthy merchant, he could have travelled down to London for the weekends, when all the murders took place. Maybrick's diary was found under his floorboards, where he identifies himself as Jack the Ripper, along with details of the killings. Tests done on the diary confirm it is from that time period. But the man who found it, Mike Barrett, claimed that he fabricated it, and then recanted that claim. Finally, there's James Barnett. Barnett was Mary Kelly, the final victim's roommate. They were also, apparently, on and off lovers. He referred to her as his wife, although she didn't see him that way. He also had a lot of problems with her. He didn't like her profession, abhorring sex work, and he didn't like her drinking of gin. He gave a lot of his money towards keeping her off the streets. The theory goes that he killed the women to try and scare her off the streets. Apparently this worked for a time, but after he lost his job, she went back to work. Ten days before Kelly's death, they had a big fight wherein a window was broken. Kelly's clothes were found in a folded manner, suggesting that she perhaps knew her killer or was comfortable with them, either a client or someone she knew. Furthermore, he'd been known in the area, which would have given him both the knowledge of the back streets the killer likely possessed and would allow him to catch the other victims unawares. Barnett was actually questioned by Inspector Aberline for several hours, but no evidence could be found to charge him, and so he was released.
So, who was Jack the Ripper? My money's either on Charles Cross or James Barnett, but I say those with pretty serious reservations. For one, neither fits the profile of having anatomical knowledge. Cross drove a meat truck, so that's something? But Barnett had no surgical skills, as far as I've seen. Both do, however, have professions or personal situations that would allow them to pass undetected by police or locals. And the fact that Barnett knew the final victim, and the Ripper stopped after that, is somewhat compelling. But motive means nothing when assessing the evidence behind a suspect. When I was at the University of Hong Kong as part of a take a module unrelated to your main degree, I did one semester of crime scene investigation, as well as several modules on Hong Kong pop culture. Hosted by HKPF veterans, one thing that they made perfectly clear to the class was that motive is actually irrelevant in whether or not someone did or did not commit a crime. Whilst Barnett may have had a motive, if there's no evidence, then there's no evidence. Either you've got it or you don't. Motive can help you narrow down a field of suspects, but without evidence, it doesn't prove anything. What could be evidence is that Barnett's familiarity would facilitate the crimes, especially the final one. But that's what you call circumstantial evidence, evidence that requires an inference rather than a direct association. So the folded clothes could indicate someone she knew was there, or that someone she didn't know broke in while she slept. It doesn't directly prove the claim. Cross, to me, had the better odds of avoiding the police, especially on the night of the double killing, when the killer doubled back on themselves, avoiding the police to leave the clue. The clue, the anti-Semitic message, is also interesting. It could mean the killer was anti-Semitic, or it could mean they wanted to throw the cops off using a current trend. It's unlikely the killer was Jewish, I think, because in that case, why would they implicate themselves so much? I do also think the Jill the Ripper theory could work, a woman would be basically unsuspected by the police for a crime like this. Although, since no female suspects have any real prominence and they don't match any of the witness descriptions, I'll have to say it's a hunch rather than anything concrete because, again, no actual evidence. The biggest takeaway from this, I think, though, is that it almost doesn't matter who Jack the Ripper was. We'll never know. And we don't need to. Because people at the time started to wise up to something deeper. The real killer monstrous as the Ripper was, was the social conditions that bred them. Punch magazine put out a comic at the time, depicting the Ripper as social neglect. That Shaw quote from earlier sums up the sentiment too. The thoughts going round at the time was that the Ripper was a product of their time, the social deprivation that made such crimes possible. That's what happens when you allow such inequality to breed. The entire underclass, unloved and invisible to mainstream society, living in squalid, cramped conditions with no protection. And to add on to that, sex workers, always among the most vulnerable in society, operating with no oversight and no protections of their own. There's a quote often misattributed to Jack the Ripper. One day, men will say, I gave birth to the 20th century. No evidence he ever said it, but it does ring somewhat true. While social initiatives like those of the Social Democrats, reformers like Thomas Barnardo, and writers like Charles Dickens were already in place trying to promote public good, the Whitechapel murders really caused the public to look up and realise how bad the conditions were in the slums of London. In the two decades after the murders, most of the slums that took place in had been torn down and rebuilt. Acts of Parliament, like the Housing of the Working Classes Act of 1890 and the Public Health Amendment Act of 1890, set minimum standards for accommodation in an effort to try and transform the degenerated urban areas. Over time, the river became associated with the aristocracy and the establishment in general, hence the popularity of the royal conspiracy, despite the complete lack of any actual evidence. 
to many, they represented an inescapable truth that sometimes the rich really can get away with murder, and it's the poor that suffer it. It also made the poor feel unprotected by the police. Now, London had had its share of uncaught criminals before. The London Monster, whose nickname was disproportionate to his actual crime of pricking ladies with pins, and the pseudo-supernatural Spring-Heeled Jack, who flew over rooftops and spat fire at people. But neither had ever actually killed anyone, so their roguish antics, unpopular and at times genuinely alarming as they were, were more stories of wonder and fascination than disgust. This time, however, it wasn't just fancy ladies' bottoms being pricked, as much as that is genuinely assault, by the way, which I mean not to downplay. It was the most vulnerable and invisible people in society being slaughtered, with seemingly no recourse for justice whatsoever. The killer got away with it, and those who knew the victims had to rebuild their lives with no closure, and it seemed that the police were all hat and no cattle, so to speak. A tool for social oppression in the form of keeping strikers and activists down, but when it came to actually protecting and serving, what good were these hired goons? So my takeaway from this story is that sometimes, the murderer themselves is less important than the conditions that created them. It's easy enough to say the Ripper was just some crazed psycho, but this ignores the reality on the ground, that for years people could have just died and gone unnoticed, a fact of life in slums. The first death, Marianne Nichols was initially suspected as being just another gang-related death, as so many deaths are suspected of being in certain deprived areas. It took insane levels of brutality, quite literally, to get people to look up and realise how bad the situation had gotten. It was only when people were threatening the police and even the government that the social tensions finally came to a head and the dark underbelly of Victorian London was finally exposed to the world. It reminds me in a strange kind of way of a lot of problems we have today. Take the Australian bushfires of earlier this year, for instance. Climate change has long been a problem and long will be, and many in Australia simply didn't care about it before. Australia has had a long problem with climate change denial, in part due to the immense strength of the coal lobby on their politics and its prominence in their industry. But then the bushfires started, and the government that willingly ignored the scientists and fire departments, and willingly defunded those scientists and fire departments, rightfully got blamed. But it took those wildfires burning the country to near cinders to make people realise how bad things had gotten. Until then it all seemed so far removed. Some small island is sinking? No concern of mine. Oh, what's that you say? My house is on fire? Oh, this is an outrage. We should do something. Only when it seemed like the monster could strike anywhere at any time as a shadow did people finally realise that maybe having a massive, barely policed slum crammed to the brim with people for whom social security would have been a joke they didn't get was a bad idea. Take a page out of Hong Kong's book. The Kowloon walled city seemed like it'd be just fine to let itself grow until it became a hotbed for triads, human trafficking and drug peddling of the 1970s. So maybe that's the lesson to be learnt. Proactive problem solving. Rather than waiting for things to get so bad they can't be ignored, tackle them ahead of time. If you remove the fuel, the fire can't burn. If you remove the tightly packed, poorly lit, poorly policed, crime-ridden slum, the serial killer has a harder time picking off the poor, innocent people. Not a cure-all, of course, I'm not suggesting that all serial killers targeted poor people, but Jack the Ripper certainly did. As for their legacy, well, they certainly attained an infamous immortality. Jack the Ripper is the most famous criminal of all time. Moriarty's got nothing on them. They were real. You can talk all day about your Hannibal Lecter or your Joker or your Dexter, 
but Jack the Ripper really killed people. Madame Tussauds, the Waxworks, has a slot for Jack the Ripper. But because of their policy of not depicting those whose likenesses aren't known, they're represented by a shadow. Almost more fitting, I think. And that's not at all to glorify them in any kind of way, rather to emphasise the fact, in my mind at least, that Jack the Ripper is more emblematic of the wider social problems of Whitechapel at the time than one maniacal person. If anything, I'd say it's almost better, when all those immediately affected are long gone, that we treat this more as a lesson in sociology than merely a criminal case to solve. Again, not to downplay the victims either, but I think it's as true to say that the conditions they lived in resulted in their murders as much as one homicidal killer did. So there you have it. Whatever conclusions you draw, that's where we'll leave off the story of Jack the Ripper. This has been Demystified with Ashley Styles, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at demystified underscore pod and support us on Patreon from as little as £1 a month to help us grow. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.